Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Your money may be working hard, but is it working smart? Welcome to the Capital Gains Podcast, presented by Capitalism.com. This is your source for powerful investment strategies from top professionals who have actually done it. Move beyond affluence and achieve real, lasting wealth. Now your host, real estate investing expert, Jonathan Twombly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Capital Gains Podcast on Capitalism.com. I'm your host, Jonathan Twombly. Are you an investor who is seeking information and ideas on creative and interesting ways to invest money other than stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Then you've come to the right place. Each week, the Capital Gains Podcast features guests pursuing the most innovative alternative investment strategies, ranging from real estate to early stage tech to art, entertainment, and maybe even assets you didn't know you could invest in. We'll also speak with successful entrepreneurs who now invest their own money full-time and learn about their biggest wins, worst losses, and most important lessons learned along the way. Today's guest is Trace Meyer, a monetary expert and leading blogger on Bitcoin and blockchain. This was a really interesting episode for me to record since I did not know much about Bitcoin before doing my research for the interview. During our discussion, Trace explained where Bitcoin came from, its spectacular performance so far as an investment vehicle, why he believes it's a store of value as effective as gold or real estate, and why he believes that Bitcoin will result in the largest transfer of wealth the world has ever seen to Bitcoin holders from everyone else. Without further ado, here's Trace Meyer. Hey, Trace, welcome to the Capital Gains Podcast. Oh, great to be here. So can you tell the audience in 30 seconds to a minute who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I have a background in accounting and law. And uh, in 2008, I'd started a blog, Run to Gold, and written a book, The Great Credit Contraction, where I kind of outlined the financial crisis and the causes of it. And then through that, I've kind of come into the Bitcoin space. And currently, I host the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where I interview all the top people in the Bitcoin space, in addition to being an early adopter of it and then an investor in core Bitcoin infrastructure like exchanges and wallets and payment processors. So for the folks out there who have heard of Bitcoin but don't really understand exactly what it is, can you give us a real brief synopsis of what a Bitcoin is and how it's used? Yeah, so Bitcoin's built out of cryptography, which is just a form of applied mathematics. And it's an internet protocol, just like we have HTTP, which is hypertext transfer protocol, or SMTP, which is simple mail transfer protocol that lets us send emails over the internet. Bitcoin is a way to send value over a communications channel or send money over the internet. So you can think of it as the actual underlying technology that enables us to email a gold coin to someone in 
anywhere in the world. That that ability to reduce an asset to data and then transfer that data over a communications channel. And so it's a huge innovation in terms of communications and infrastructure and monetary science. It's it's really a huge, huge deal. And it should also be noted that, that transferring of money, that's just the first application. Just like gold can be used for a ton of different applications, you can use it for jewelry or filling teeth or conducting electricity or so many different things. So likewise, Bitcoin can be used for so many different things. And one of these things is smart contracts. So being able to write in if-then conditional statements that then execute according to the code. But actually, you know, these are like legal contracts that impact, you know, computers or keys, or maybe it's a smart lock that allows somebody into or out of a building. All of this can be done programmatically with the money itself. So holding security deposits, all types of these things, we can we can really reduce the trust that's needed on on the parts of parties and and rely instead on this internet protocol. Just like we rely on the internet to log into our online banking or send emails or you know talk like we're recording this podcast, we're able to do this now with money. And so we're really building all of these things out now. So what is it that gives Bitcoin value? Well, it's the same thing that gives anything value. It's the subjective value theory of money or subjective value theory of everything. It's that individuals themselves place value on goods or services to different degrees. It's a comparative value theory. So I might value an iPhone more than I value the $600 that I have, or I might value the orange more than I value the apple. So likewise, people might value the Bitcoin more than they value a certain number of dollars or euros or oranges or whatever it is. So it it all comes down to the individual making the choice to value something. How is it different from fiat money then? I mean, I know the analogy is often made to gold with Bitcoin, but if Bitcoin is a computer-generated currency that derives value from people's belief in it, how is it different from paper money? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. In my book, The Great Credit Contraction, I wrote about the difference between the regression theorem of money or the subjective value theory of money. They kind of stem from the same place, that it's the individuals that value stuff and it bubbles up through the market as a most saleable good. That's one theory of money. And then there's some. There's another theory called chartalism. And chartalism is the state theory of money. It's the theory that money or currency has value because the state... You you know, whether it's the United States or it's Germany or China or whoever, that they decree it so. But, you know, that's not really how the world really works. Government policy stuff, it can modify and shape and guide human behavior. But at the end of the day, we have a lot of empirical evidence to show that even when a state says that a money has value, it can still become worthless. You know, whether it's Venezuelan boulevards right now, whether it's Czechoslovakia, it's Weimar, Germany, there are thousands of, of state-sponsored currencies in the fiat currency graveyard. And so this chartalism theory of money is not really founded on sound economics, just like the theory that the sun revolves around the earth was not founded on sound physics or, or astrophysics principles. And just because the powerful institution of the time, whether it's the state or the church, decreed it as so, didn't make it true. And that's really where gold and Bitcoin kind of come into their own because they have value independent of 
having an institution or an individual place the value on it. And that's because in gold's case, it comes down to the periodic table and the number of atoms. In Bitcoin's case, it comes down to the underlying math and this proof of work that everybody is able to perform on their own computers. They're able to verify whether a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin or not, just like we're able to verify whether gold is gold or not based on how many atoms that it has. And so that's how we've got a big difference between this state theory of money with chartalism and the market-based approach, which is that individuals choose what has, what has value. So even under the market theory, theoretically at least, the market could suddenly decide that Bitcoin has no value. Is that true? There's nothing inherent to it other than the subjective belief of all the people who use Bitcoin that it has value, that, that supports the value. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, it's completely fair. Just like the market could decide that gold has no value or that silver has no value or that the US dollar has no value or that a car or a, or an apartment building has no value. It, yeah, it all comes down to individual choice and, and this subjective valuing that people have. But so far, over thousands and thousands of years, gold has always had value ascribed to it by, by humans. And so far, since Bitcoin came out, about eight years ago, it's always had value, you know, and so it's gaining a reputation. It's gaining confidence as a store of value. It's new, you know, it's new. It's it's still being trusted. People are still learning to understand it. But so far, it's never not had value since it's existed. What are the systemic factors that support the sub individual subjective value choices in your mind? Yeah, so there are a lot of these. You, of course, you have the traditional principles of money, divisibility, store value, the lack of being able to just create new units out of nothing. Like with the Federal Reserve coin or the Euro coin, we have people in back doors that are just able to press control P. They're just able to print more of these off, right? And so why do we have trust in those? With Bitcoin, we actually are able to prove the quantity and the quality of every single Bitcoin pretty much instantaneously at no cost, which is different from gold because you actually have to like shave off the gold and assay it and make sure that it's pure gold or whatnot. So we've got, you know, we've got this divisibility, this portability. We've never had a money as portable as Bitcoin. It's literally just a number. It's a, a number that you use to solve a math problem. And and that means that any way that you can store a number means that you can you can then transport that number, you know, over communication channels. So you can encrypt the number, you can email the number, you can post it to a website, like all these different ways of actually moving what gives you the dominion or the control over the Bitcoin. And it also means that that your ability to control that Bitcoin can exist in multiple places at the same time, meaning it could be in multiple different safety deposit boxes or encrypted in multiple files. And you can also apply other things like Shamir's secret sharing, which is a particular mathematical tool that you use to split up these private keys. You can do that. So now you can say it takes three out of five of the pieces to then move those Bitcoins around. So now you're able to use multi-signature and you're able to distribute the keys among family members, for example, as part of the estate plan. So all of these things make Bitcoin just such a usable, useful, valuable thing for people to, to begin to apply in their life. And I think that's why it gives it, you know, that's why people have begun to value it and began to acquire it and use it as a store of value and all of these things. So in preparation for this interview, I did some reading up on Bitcoin and I understand that the supply 
of bitcoins is limited. They all haven't been derived yet, but there's no you know sort of unlimited derivability of bitcoins. How do you know that that's true? How does that system work? Why is it that way? Can you give me some background about that? Yeah, so I mean, this is an internet protocol. So we've got rules to the protocol, which govern how it functions. And the protocol is then harnessed or used by many different computers everywhere. And so in this protocol, we have the rules that there can only be 21 million Bitcoins total. And then these Bitcoins are solved for or derived about every 10 minutes. And it used to be you would find 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes and about every four years it changes. And then it was 25 and now it's currently 12 and a half Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And in about three and a half years, it'll be 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And you can actually have the software on your own computer and you can download what's called the blockchain. And the blockchain is where all of this computation has happened. And you're able to verify exactly how many Bitcoins there are and to which addresses they're associated. And if you change so much as a comma or a zero to a one in this blockchain, the mathematical proof is no longer valid. So that's how you are able to ensure all of this and, and do what's called economic consensus. You're able to actually run the proof and do the calculation individually on your own to verify the number of Bitcoins that are somewhere or the total number of Bitcoins in general. So it's sort of like a, it's like wiki money almost. Oh, yeah, except Wiki does not have this proof of work that goes into it because every 10 minutes, the Bitcoin miners, they're searching for what's called a nonce. And then whoever finds this nonce, they're able to create the next block. And there are about 400,000 blocks that have been created. But finding that nonce, the difficulty of of finding that changes based on how much computer processing power has been trying to, to solve that. And in the Bitcoin blockchain's case, currently the amount of processing power that's that's going into securing this Bitcoin network is tens and tens of thousands of times more computer processing power than all the 500 supercomputers in the world combined. I mean, it's just absolutely absurd how much computer processing power is going into this proof of work. And that means that if somebody wanted to attack the network or something, they would have to have just huge amounts of computer processing power, which isn't even really that feasible. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask you, which is, is there a systemic risk to the Bitcoin system that you can think of? You know, that's an excellent question. It's It's been about eight years now. Bitcoin's been battle-hardened. There's about 10 to $12 billion of value in Bitcoin. So that's a really big bounty to incentivize trying to break it. So far, it hasn't been broken. In terms of the systemic risk, oh, and, you know, everybody who's got money in this system has a vested interest in trying to figure out whether it can be broken. And if it can, like, how do we, how do we guard against that and protect it, right? Or you lose your money. So there's a lot of brain power that's really gone after this problem, both trying to break it and trying to secure it. And so far, it's been secured. In terms of systemic risks, if there were any, I would say that one, it could be in the underlying cryptography itself. However, 
if the cryptographic functions that are used were compromised, we've got much larger problems. And that's because the cryptographic primitives that are used in Bitcoin have been widely used and widely tested for lots of other things. For example, all of our banking and financial systems currently rely on these particular cryptographic primitives. The U.S. government, when it secures top secret or classified information, it uses these cryptographic primitives. So if they were compromised, then all of this other data, in addition to Bitcoin, would also be compromised. So I don't really think that we have a systemic risk from the cryptographic primitives, or we at least don't have it right now. Who knows what type of quantum computing or whatnot we'll have in the future. Another risk where we might have potential catastrophic risk would be with the specialized computer hardware that goes into securing the Bitcoin network and who has access to or control over or the ability to produce that hardware. But that's rapidly closing also because we're reaching kind of the end of being able to improve on the hardware that we have or we're reaching kind of a quantum level. And so these application-specific integrated circuits that are specially configured to do this type of computation, they're rapidly reaching the end of the ability to further improve them, which means that they'll become extremely commoditized. And once they become extremely commoditized, and then the more widespread they're made, even the more distributed and decentralized and therefore censorship resistant the Bitcoin network will be, which means that it'll have that much less attack surface and attack vectors that people could apply to it. So I don't really see too many, if any, real catastrophic risks to Bitcoin. I do think there are lots of other risks, but not catastrophic ones. What other risks do you see? Well, the largest one, of course, would be legal or jurisdictional. Anti-money laundering laws, Bank Secrecy Act in the United States, terrorism financing, you know, all of these things that the state has used to try to shape public policy. Well, I mean, what do you do when you're able to transfer value over a communications channel and it's done in a censorship resistant way. I mean, when we want to move gold around, we have to concentrate it in a particular place in space and time, but you don't necessarily have to do that with Bitcoin. And so that just opens up so many incredible ways that bad people could use it. And, you know, like gold, gold serves its master equally well, whether the master's good or bad, like gold doesn't care, right? Because I mean, gold's just an element. So likewise, the Bitcoin network is just an element. And so it's just a tool. And like any tool, it could be abused by people who want to use it in a negative way. So far, it's not really been that enticing for people who want to use it in a negative way because of how it functions. Every transaction is linkable and mathematically provable. And so if you use Bitcoin in a bad way, it provides and leaves a lot of evidence for law enforcement to track you down and throw you in jail. And there have been quite a few people that have been tracked down and thrown in jail who've used it in in negative ways. So, you know, that that's kind of the largest risk I see to it. Others are just whether it's going to be able to outcompete any of the other competitors that come along. You know, it's trying to compete with the dollar and the euro, but it's also got other cryptocurrencies that it's trying to compete against like Litecoin or Namecoin or some of these other ones. I was going to ask if there is either now or foreseeably in the future a threat to the value of Bitcoin because Bitcoin itself 
becomes essentially commoditized because you have the ability to create infinite competitors to Bitcoin that do the same thing. Well, you can create lots of the competitors, but the competitors won't be Bitcoins themselves. They won't be able to transfer the value on the Bitcoin network. And the Bitcoin network, it's got the first mover advantage, and it's got a lot of different network effects all taking place at the same time. And so it's these network effects of speculation and and merchants and consumers and the miners who secure it and the developers who build apps and, and businesses and applications on top of it and financialization like there's Bitcoin ETF that the SEC is ruling on right now. All of these things and then the, the World Reserve Settlement Currency function of it. These are seven different network effects, seven different whole areas and network effects taking place in all seven of these areas at the same time that give Bitcoin this exponential quadratic scaling in terms of its usefulness and its functionality. And those network effects, that's not what any of these clones are able to do, which is one of the reasons why I think, you know, we have 700 plus of these clones, but none of them have been able to come up with a market cap anywhere close to Bitcoin's. And Bitcoin currently, out of all the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin has about 80 80 plus percent of the total market cap. So it's, you know, it's doing a very dominant job in terms of drawing capital and value to it. So this might be a little bit of an out of the sort of left field question for you, but you know one of the issues that I see discussed in the context of artificial intelligence and automation and the internet in general is that you have a lot of destruction of jobs going on and then they're being replaced by you know, the companies that have the massive market capitalization, say like a Facebook, just doesn't create the number of jobs that a GM created back when it had the, the greatest capitalization on the stock market. And there's also the fact that it's very difficult for anybody to, to compete with Facebook because Facebook had the first, well, it wasn't the first, but it was the first one to capture the public imagination. It has all of those network effects. It's become, in a sense, like a like a utility almost in the way that it's used, and that means that you don't have a situation where you have you know a thousand Facebooks flourishing and employing all those people. It sounds like Bitcoin is a bit in the same vein, where you have one limited entity that sort of takes over the field and can't be competed with. You know, what are the implications for capitalism and the market system in general? when you have that kind of domination and inability to compete. It seems to me that it undermines the typical argument about why monopolies are not sustainable, because if you have monopolistic pricing, you ultimately are going to attract competitors. But in this new world we're living in, that may not be true. So uh, do you have any thoughts on that? That's an excellent public policy question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm more interested in like the state of things are and how I can align my own decisions to best take advantage of that. But yeah, it's as we move further into the information age, we we just see these incredible advantages that network effects give. And being first is so important. You know, look at Amazon, look at eBay, look at Facebook. And eBay only had two network effects. It had the buyers and sellers, then they bought PayPal and and, you know, and then they become totally impregnable fortress. I mean, Yahoo's threw millions and millions of dollars at it and couldn't 
crack it. And they only had two network effects. And, you know, as we move further into this information age, you, you raised a lot, I mean, you raised a lot of points there. It's going to be very difficult to figure out how we allocate resources around. I mean, obviously, we don't want people digging holes just to dig holes. But horse populations peaked right about the turn of the 20th century. And we didn't need like a lot of horses because we had automobiles and engines and stuff. And so likewise, people have to develop the skills and the abilities to become useful as we move further into this information age, because we're going to have so much automation. We're going to have so much artificial intelligence. We're going to have so much that's being run. These There's a TED Talk, the algorithms that run our lives. And, you know, Bitcoin's really just an algorithm and it's going to run money and value transfer and computation and all of this stuff. And overcoming a protocol that gets entrenched is darn near impossible. I mean, we're still using SMTP. It's nearly like 30, 30 plus years old. And it's a horrible protocol from a technical standpoint. It's not very good. And we have so many better ways of communicating and doing stuff besides email. But SMTP has a network effects. And so that's what we all use. Uh, and will it be the same way with Bitcoin? I, I don't know, but most likely, you know, it, and it's going to be extremely difficult for something that's even a lot better than Bitcoin to actually supplant it because Bitcoin will be there first and will have the network effects. And I suppose on the bright side, one of the things that it will do is it will be a protector of property rights. And if you've read any of Hernando de Soto's stuff, the, the chief thing that helps us get rid of poverty is the protection of property rights. And so being able to enable and empower people all over the world to have protection of their property rights, I think that's going to do huge, huge things for helping people to secure their wealth, to accumulate capital, to grow their wealth, to be productive, to to grow their businesses and all of these things. But yeah, we don't know exactly how it'll play out. And I think it's going to be a a lot, I think there will be a lot of turbulence getting from here to there, particularly with how governments decide to react to all of this stuff. You know, and we're seeing the rise of nationalism with Brexit and Trump and perhaps Marie Le Pen and this referendum that's happening in Italy and Putin. So we're seeing some barriers try to come up as opposed to to removing all the barriers. And that's one of the things that Bitcoin does. I mean, it and, and internet protocols do. They remove the barriers that are there. Is Bitcoin safe against any particular government? You, you mentioned this before, that one of the risks was the U.S. government, for instance, cracking down on it somehow. But how would that happen? Or, or is it actually impervious to that, too, because of without us creating a firewall between the United States and every other country on the internet, is there any way that the government really could keep us from using Bitcoin well, I mean, of course, they could make it very unattractive for people to use it, you know, round people up and throw them in jail if they're if they're using, you know, this particular cryptographic protocol. But even that would not be very feasible under our current legal standards, because in the mid 90s, Dr. Adam Back, he's a cryptographer, he he was involved and some of his stuff was involved in what are called the crypto wars cases. And these are cases about cryptography that went to the United States Supreme Court and the United United States Supreme Court upheld cryptography as freedom of speech. And that's really what it is, right? We're just performing math when we do cryptography. Well, 
guess what? Dr. Back, he's cited in the Bitcoin white paper. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these guys, uh, they don't quit, right? And so now we, we have religious speech. We have political speech that's in the blockchain. We have all of these things. I mean, it, it would be very difficult and, and very counterproductive for the U.S. government to try and crack down on doing math and science. You know, I mean, if are we really going to be a very good society if we make it illegal to do math? I mean, <laughs> I mean, we need to be a pro-math society. I, what, we're going to start putting Galileo under house arrest again? I mean, that's not going to help us maintain our military and technological dominance. We will rapidly become a, a North Korea or a Venezuela if we try to crack down on the scientists, because it's the scientists that are the real warriors in this information age. That's who determines who the primary power centers are. And so, you know, if we try to retard technological and mathematical progress, then those scientists and that brain power will go somewhere else and they'll do their work somewhere else. And that'll be much to the detriment of the United States or to Russia or to China or whoever's trying to crack down on people that are just doing math. And we're already seeing that. I know quite a few people that have left their home countries because uh, there's greater freedom to do math in other places. So they've just left where they were born and gone somewhere else. So I'd like to transition at this point and ask you about your book which you published in 2008 called The Great Credit Contraction. I'd like to understand a little bit about your thesis of the book and how it relates to Bitcoin. Yeah, so the general thesis is that over the last 500 plus years, we've been moving from safe and liquid assets into less safe and less liquid assets. And this has been a great credit expansion. And so we've gone from using gold that we've held in our hand, gold or silver, to using fiat currency and fractional reserve banking. And what this has done is that it's caused a lot of misallocations of capital. And people have gotten very comfortable with assets that are not very safe, not very liquid. Well, what happens is it reaches a peak and then you get a final blow off top and then everybody begins seeking safer, more liquid assets. And that's what we had in 2008. And people burrowed down into U.S. Treasuries and, and they burrowed down into gold. And remember, it took us 500 years to get here. So it's going to take us probably 30, 40 years to go the other way. But in that process, all the wealth that doesn't get into those safe and liquid assets, it's just going to evaporate away. And we saw this with a lot of mortgage-backed securities and auction rate securities, you know, things that had traded like money market one-to-one -one with the dollar. All of a sudden, like overnight, they go to three cents on the dollar. A lot of wealth evaporated. And we're going to see, we're going to see a lot of that, especially if we have another major financial crisis. Like let's say that Deutsche Bank fails. And then the, the daisy chain contagion and systemic risk that happens because of that. And when you look at the repo markets and you look at the treasury yields and you look at negative interest rate policy and zero interest rate policy and all the bailouts that, that have had to have happened, I mean, how are they going to reliquify the system? Well, they're probably going to do it with the SDR. And as a result, it's going to cause a lot of decrease in the purchasing power of the dollar. All of these things are part of this great credit contraction as capital moves into safer, more liquid assets, which when I wrote the book, that asset would be gold. But what we're seeing is that 
people are increasingly finding Bitcoin to be useful for those purposes and for that function because it's much more portable at being able to transfer it over a communications channel. So lots of Chinese are moving into Bitcoin, for example. Curious about the China example because China is well known for having the, you know, the great what is it, the Great Firewall of China on the internet. How does that impede or affect the ability of Chinese citizens to put their money into Bitcoin? So there, there are two different kind of questions there. One is anybody can interact with the Bitcoin network very easily if you have an Iridium satellite phone you're around the Great Firewall of China just like that. You can use VPNs, virtual private networks, and you can get around the, the firewall. So getting around it is perfectly fine. Where it, It's when it you begin interacting with the current financial system. So you're trying to move money from a bank account or something into Bitcoin. That's where it becomes more difficult. And so the Chinese, they're doing lots of Bitcoin mining. They already are they already have a lot of cash that they use in their financial system. They use Macau and a lot of gambling to move money around. They've been using mergers and acquisitions to move money around on a larger basis. Anytime you introduce government policy to engage in any type of financial repression, it just causes causes people with with the money and the capital to alter their behavior and find a way around the wall or find a a hole through the wall. (laughs) And Bitcoin is uh, a very useful tool for a lot of these people. It's just like trying to grab a handful of water, right? It's even worse. Try try to grab a handful of of gas. (laughs) I mean, because you can sell the Bitcoins for South African Rand and boom, you've got South African Rand in your bank account in South Africa, or you want to sell it for for Swiss francs or for euros. We have hundreds of Bitcoin exchanges now all over the world where you can trade the Bitcoins for underlying different assets. And if that doesn't work for you, you can meet someone in person and trade the Bitcoin for gold coins or for a briefcase full of cash. Bitcoin is becoming a very saleable good or a very saleable commodity, meaning that it's very easy to sell it anywhere in the world. Let's drill down a little bit to individual people. We've been talking on a kind of very high level, theoretical level up until this point. But let's talk a bit about how individual listeners to the podcast could become involved in the Bitcoin market, why they might want to become involved in the Bitcoin market, how they go about doing it, and how they might look at it as an investment opportunity. I, I've wrapped a lot of questions into that question. So so unpack it as you will, and I'll follow up. But if we could talk a little bit more about individual people and how they can benefit from this market. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So there are two prongs to this. One is, you know, how much money should I put in it? And I'll address that one a little bit later. The more important question, in my opinion, is we've already talked about technological literacy and the importance of that as we move into this information age. You know, when we were talking about jobs and artificial intelligence and the algorithms, we need to be technologically literate because we're now in this information age. And so learning how to use Bitcoin, learning how to buy some, move it around, store it in your wallets, keep it backed up, all this stuff, this is this is intellectual capital that has to be acquired. This is stuff that we have to learn how to do. You know, just like we learned how to send emails and we learned how to attach files to when we sent it, we have to learn how to transfer value over over communications channel now. This is, you know, regardless of how much money you may or may not put into Bitcoin, if you put any in, I do think it's very important to acquire the education in order to be able to do that. Because having more choices is always better 
better than having less choices. You know, you're you're much wealthier if you have more choices because opportunity costs and all of these things. So I think it's very important for people to learn how to use Bitcoin and these cryptocurrencies. You know, spend some time, figure out how to do it. A good site to help people get started is weusecoins.com. So once somebody has kind of gained some of this technological literacy, then it becomes a question of, well, you know, how much should I buy or like how how should I allocate it in a, in a portfolio? And my personal opinion, I like about in terms of gold and silver, I like maybe 5 to 15% of one's net worth in like gold or silver. That seems to be a general consensus of nice, safe, secure thing to weight and balance the portfolio. And so out of that 5 to 15% that goes in a sovereign asset like gold, then maybe 10% of that in Bitcoin. So you're looking at half a percent to maybe one and a half percent of net worth in Bitcoin. You know, some, not some huge part of the portfolio that one will miss, but enough that if there is a gigantic wealth transfer that that asymmetric allocation will will be able to pay off. Because if Bitcoin really does become what, in my opinion, it's destined to become, then we could be looking at a couple million dollars per Bitcoin. And it's currently like $775 a Bitcoin. So we could see just a huge wealth transfer, the likes of which the world has never seen with this new asset. And we're in totally uncharted waters. In terms of a species, humanity has never seen a tool like Bitcoin. It's the first practical implementation of triple entry bookkeeping. And when we developed double entry bookkeeping and the, you know, with the Medici, that led to the foundation for the industrial revolution and the allocation of capital and the creation of nation states as we currently have it, that led to us organizing society and creating wealth on a scale that we previously hadn't even conceived of. And now we're upgrading our accounting information system yet again. And I think that because of that and because of all the automation and the and the computer and all of these things, I think we're going to see the creation of huge amounts of wealth and we're going to see this wealth being transferred also, being transferred from other assets to holders of these new tools like Bitcoin. So then how do individual people go about getting their hands on Bitcoins and storing them and using them as an investment vehicle or just as a currency? Yeah. Well, like I said, there's weusecoins.com. There's a getting started page. There's a buy page, you know, because who knows where all the listeners are at, right? They could be in a hundred different countries. And these pages will help people like figure out how to, how to buy Bitcoins and how to store them. And I think one of the services, you can even buy Bitcoins with a credit card. So you can buy like $50 worth of Bitcoins with a credit card. And then you have enough to kind of play around with and send around and kind of get your hands on some and figure out how to begin using it. That's what I recommend, you know, gradual incremental steps. You know, you don't jump in and try to do the product chain rule. You know, you start with adding one plus three and four minus seven, you know, to to figure out your math. And then you you move up from there. (laughs) One thing that I didn't have a chance to ask you yet was how you personally got into Bitcoin. I know you're one of the early bloggers about it. And you wrote that book about credit contraction. How did you personally wind up getting into Bitcoin? Yeah, I just learned about it on the internet. I mean, ever since high school, I've I've always kind of been 
very interested in computers and the different tools that we have to use with them. And so when I ran across Bitcoin on the internet, because I I had such an interest in money and currencies and economics and all of these things, like you know, I ran into it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> this is really fun. <laughs> and it's done pretty well in my six years or so of publicly talking about Bitcoin. Bitcoin has increased about two times what Berkshire Hathaway has done in the last 40 years. <laughs> so if anybody wow. thought Warren Buffett was a good, uh, made a good call, Bitcoin's done about twice what Warren Buffett's done in one tenth the time. <laughs> Well, there's some people who would say though that sounds like a classic bubble, though. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, right? One of the things that is interesting is that Bitcoin is now, in ter- in terms of a 200-day moving average, it's at an all-time high for 200-day moving average. And I like the 200-day moving average because it filters out all the daily noise, and it's about 20% higher than it was during the 2013-2014 bubble. That's where Bitcoin ran up to like $1,200, and then it crashed to about 200 and has been consolidating for about three years. And so Bitcoin's on this new bull run and who knows where it'll go from here. It's only a $12 billion market cap, which means that it's large. It's a larger M0 money stock than 61% of countries on the planet. But $12 billion is absolutely nothing. We've got $13 trillion in U.S. bank accounts. We've got $30 trillion in offshore assets in tax havens. If you move just 1% of that into Bitcoin, I mean, the amount of saleable Bitcoin, because a lot of Bitcoins have been lost, people have lost their private keys. You move 1% of the offshore tax haven assets into Bitcoin, you're looking at a couple million dollars of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is tiny. I mean, Apple has $215 billion of cash on their balance sheet. Why do they want to hold cash in a bank that might fail when they could hold the private keys to the wealth themselves? I mean, Siemens set up a bank after the financial crisis because they didn't want to be exposed to the to the insolvent European banks. And I think we might see this corporations wanting to hold their own private keys to their money and not trusting banks to hold it. I mean, why should they? The banks need bailouts. The banks have been failing. Like, why should they have trust in the banks? Why should individuals have trust in the banks? I mean, there's only a couple, you know, there's like $15 billion in the FDIC that's insuring 10 plus trillion dollars of deposits. Like, your money's not there, guys. <laughs> I mean, as soon as confidence is lost, that purchasing power in bank accounts, SPIC insurance on your investment accounts, all that's all those promises just go up in smoke. But that's the thing. Like, if you have a gold coin in your hand, if you have a piece of real estate that you got title to, if you have bitcoins in your wallet, these are assets that that you have much greater dominion and control over because you're holding the keys themselves as opposed to some other institution holding the keys, some other institution that's made promises that it can't keep, promises like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare. I mean, all the governments around the world are completely overstretched in terms of the promises that they've made. They have to I mean, these promises will not be kept. That's a mathematical certainty. So it's a it becomes a question of how do you protect yourself from their collapse and their failure? And Bitcoin might be a tool to do that, you know, in addition to other tools like gold and and stuff. 
Yeah, one other thought that occurred to me was that I'm not a tinfoil hat guy, so I don't, you know, I'm not like burying gold coins in the backyard, but, you know, I've got bullion stored in a safety deposit box. And it occurred to me if there was some kind of failure of like the electrical grid that prevented me from getting into the safety deposit box, well, then, you know, there goes the gold, right? So the Bitcoins might have the same problem, except you can actually, I mean, they're on your phone. Like what, what's the risk in that vein? Yeah, I mean, if you and I funded a I funded a wallet armory, which you know is really wonderful tool for securing bitcoins. But you bring up a great point. Like the number one source of budget funds, usually in the top three for a lot of states, is unclaimed property. California, for example, they tried to reduce the unclaimed property time frame from seven years to one year, and then they settled on three years so that they can go and basically take a bunch of people's property out of their safety deposit boxes and put it into the general fund. (laughs) I mean, so like there is no reason to, to have assets where they can just take them. And that's the thing with Bitcoin. If you're securing it properly, you can, you can secure it very safely, large amounts of wealth, have it properly divided up with all of these keys in, in many different areas and you're safe and secure. Whereas I mean, there's now $150 trillion of debt since the 2008 financial crisis. We haven't learned anything in terms of society. We've only piled on more debt, and the day of reckoning comes. And that's not even counting all of the contingent liabilities, things like Social Security and Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, that's like $200 trillion. There there are a lot of promises that, that are going to get broken, and we're seeing it, you know, just ask any millennial if they're going to see any of the money that they put into Social Security. No, they're not. So why are they putting any money into Social Security? You know, so then this this morphs from an economic to a financial to a geopolitical to a geostrategic crisis that we're in. And when you're anytime you're in crisis, you know, these assets like gold and Bitcoin in finance parlance, they have a negative beta. So they, they perform well in times of crises. Right. People flock to them. Yeah, they're useful. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> always always <laughs> cheerful, right? <laughs> hey, some, some people just make a lot of money when the world burns. <laughs> well, actually, that, this is absolutely true. It's, crisis is a famous time for people to create enormous wealth, but you have to obviously be on the right side of the equation when that happens. But Trace, this has been really, really interesting. I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Where can people reach you if they'd like to get in touch and learn more about what you do? Yeah, so I have the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, www.bitcoin.kn, and that's usually you know a good place for people to find me. Then I have Twitter and stuff on there that if people want to reach out, they can do so there. Excellent. Thank you so much today. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks for having me on here. It's been a wonderful discussion. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan again. That interview with Trace Meyer was really illuminating, particularly the discussion about how Bitcoin is effectively insulated from its other competitors because of the first mover advantage. Sounds like it may be time to study up on Bitcoin and understand this phenomenon a bit better. If you like the Capital Gains podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Please like us on Facebook and recommend us to your friends. And if you write us a five-star review on iTunes, we'll be eternally grateful. If you'd like to learn more about passive real estate investing and my company, Two Bridges Asset Management, visit our website at www.twobridgesmanagement.com. That's two bridges spelled out and MGMT for management. You can also follow me on my real estate investing blog, The Mortar, at www.themortarblog.com. 
Until next time, this is Jonathan Twombly for the Capital Gains Podcast on Capitalism.com. Get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.